0: Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. We will read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, although the primary verses we are really looking at will be verse 20 and verse 21. But let's read, commencing with the 13th verse. By this we know that we abide in him, And he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then the passage we looked at last Sunday. We love because he first loved us. We go on. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot. Love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, brethren, we are back in this series of messages in First John on the subject of assurance of salvation. And we have stated before, let me say it again, that one reason why this subject is crucial, well, there's two reasons. The first is simply the fact that your ability to be an effective Christian, your ability to to want to share the gospel as the truly good news of salvation hangs on whether you know you are saved, you know you are going to heaven when you die. If you are in a state of doubt, you will not find yourself with the energy in order to share this good news with a world that is perishing. After all, you may be thinking you too are perishing. And therefore, if you are going to, as it were, arrive in heaven with a track load of rewards, then you ought to know early enough in your spiritual life that God has saved you, because that will propel you into genuine God-centered and Christ-exalting service. But the other reason why it is important is because you don't want to take chances with whether you will end up in heaven or not. You don't want to take chances. Clearly, the Bible says a number of times that there are individuals who in this life will think God will accept them in heaven, and only to discover on the final day of judgment that he says, no, you're not coming in, and commands his angels, to then take us and throw us into outer darkness. Now clearly, you don't want to be numbered among such people. You want to find yourself accepted by God. It's not a matter of positive thinking. It's not a matter of closing your eyes and hoping it's going to happen. The Bible itself gives abundant proof for you to be able to tell now while you're still alive whether you are already a fit candidate for heaven. And so it's important for you to know now rather than to take chances because there will be no second chance. The last time we looked at this passage, we saw why Christians love God and why Christians love others. And we saw that it is because God first loved us. We saw that in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And we notice there that it is primarily because we have inherited the nature of God. He is a loving God and consequently because his love is in us we will love too. But also it is in response to his love for us. He is a God who loves us and has loved us historically when he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. We respond to that love by loving him back and loving his people too. So today we're going on to see the inevitable double dimension of true spiritual love or true Christian love. And notice I'm saying the inevitable double dimension. In other words, the point that is being made is that if your love is purely vertical, then it's not true spiritual or Christian love. It is a lie. And the sooner you wake up to that reality, the better. The spiritual love that is invariably from God is one that has a double dimension. It is a love for God, and then at the same time, it is a love that flows to the people of God. And if in you that is missing, then what we are learning as we wrap up this section of love is beware. Beware, you may be running around with a counterfeit in your hands, and the sooner you throw it away and get the genuine article, the better it will be for you. So what is John saying in these last two verses? First of all, he is making the point that if you claim to love God, and yet Harbour hatred for fellow believers. You are cheating only yourself. Let's see that from verse 20. The first part. Verse 20. The first part. If anyone says I love God. And hates his brother. He is a liar. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I think the point that John is making, first of all, is the fact that divine love does not exist with hatred at the same time. Divine love cannot exist with hatred at the same time. So if in your heart there apparently seems to be some affections going out towards God, and at the same time, that same heart is apparently exuding with hatred towards others, then what you think is love is actually not. It is something else. And again, remember, John is dealing with assurance. And in dealing with assurance, he is now giving us a hypothetical situation. A situation which did not necessarily happen at the point he is writing but he is making the assumption that there is somebody who is listening to him, and he is he's sort of weighing, am I a Christian or am I not? Am I a Christian or am I not? And as he's weigh, weighing these issues, he begins to say, okay, granted I'm a little weak on, on this side of uh, uh, loving the, the, the brethren, but wow, you, you know, I really love God. And John wants to quickly say, hang on, hang on, don't try and assure yourself on that score. Because true, biblical, Christian, spiritual love is not like that. I want us to also remember that in the Bible, hatred is not always positive hatred. We will see in a few moments uh, examples about hatred being simply a disinterest in the needs of others. A lack of interest. Look with me quickly at uh, chapter 3 and verse 17. Chapter 3 and verse 17. We read there, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and here it is, yet closes his heart against him, the question is asked, How does God's love abide in such a person? In other words, the the issue there is a failure to respond positively to this need that is staring you back in the face. You see the need. The message is very clear in your own mind. This person is in need. And you can see you have the capacity to meet that need. And then what happens? You close your heart. Now, that's the act that is being referred to there as hatred. The closing of the heart. The refusal. No, no, no. I'm not going to do anything about this. Let somebody else handle it. And we're being told that that is actually hatred. It is hatred. And John here is saying, such a person is only cheating himself. When he then proceeds and goes to church, and as it were, raises his hands to worship God, and says, Lord, I love you. God is looking down, going, "Uh uh-uh, uh-uh, you don't. You think so, but you don't. And therefore, what John is telling us here, is that we should assess our assurance of salvation not simply by thinking, well, look, between me and God, there seems to be this, this sense of affection, this, this welling up of love. He is saying we should also throw in other believers, especially the believers that you are with in the same church. You should be asking yourself the question, when I am aware of their needs do I close my heart or do I proceed to practically do something for them? John gives two reasons why true spiritual Christian love is of a double dimension. The first reason he gives is that you cannot love an invisible God and then fail to love a visible brother. Let me say it again. You cannot love an invisible God and then fail to love a visible brother. Look at the way he puts it in the second part of verse 20. He says, beginning from the first, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, love responds to situations. That's what it does. It responds to situations. And if you cannot see those situations, how do you know that you love? I've used this illustration before, though thankfully I haven't had it on radio uh, for a while now. Uh, but the the time I had it, it stuck, and it was uh, a radio announcer who was about to knock off, and as he's bidding farewell he is saying, I love you all. I love you very much. And I'm thinking, but you don't even know me. Obviously, he was feeling nice about knocking off and going home (laughs) and mistaking that for real love. Let's face it. If we are to judge love by that, then Friday 17 hours must flow with a lot of love, isn't it? a lot of love. Because you are knocking off for the week and enjoying the weekend that is before you. John has already given the situation that proves love or proves a lack of love. And it is when you see a brother in need. Verse 17 again, chapter 3. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, You see, he sees. It's a practical situation. It's an observable situation. It's not some imagination of some situation. It's right there in front of you. And he is basically saying, if you are failing to respond to a situation where God's love is calling you to respond. You cannot at the same time be claiming you love God whom you don't see. You you, you don't have a situation occurring before you where you can respond that way. God never needs your time. He never does. He may have commanded you To give him your time, but he's never sort of biting his nails, wondering, will will this person help me for a few minutes? He's never like that. But for the brothers and sisters that you sit with in those pews, there are individuals that need your ability to help them. Look at the situation that Jesus gives in Matthew 25. He is looking forward to judgment day. And there are individuals there that get a shock of their lives because they're expecting to be welcomed into heaven, and instead Jesus kicks them out. But before we get to them... Let's begin with the ones that he welcomes into heaven. Matthew 25. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will replace the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now look at the real life situations and look at the responses of love. Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Of course they are surprised because they did not ever hear of Jesus being sick or in prison or or naked or hungry or thirsty. They never heard of Jesus being in such circumstances. Let's read on. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And then when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, or these my brothers, you did it to me. Whenever this news hit your eardrums about Brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so, having these difficulties in their lives, you immediately found your way there, and you did something about it. Actually, you were loving me. That's what you were doing. You were loving me. But listen to the opposite. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And of course, the surprising situation is, hey, come on, Lord. <laughs> I look. If, if I ever saw you, you, in that condition, you, I would have done everything for you, everything. And listen to his answer. Verse 44. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then you answer them, saying, Truly, I said to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And the consequence, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think the point is being made there. That the test of love Is not you asking yourself Do I love God In heaven On his throne Do I love him Obviously you will say yes The question is Do I love his people Am I really interested In God's children Am I I'm quite sure In the last one week, you heard of a brother or a sister being unwell, sorrowing about something, going through some difficult situation. Here's the question. What did you do about it? Simple. What did you do about it? There's a possibility your response would have been, I'm too busy. And it's been like that for quite a while. Each time news comes to you, I'm too busy. And the Lord is saying, yeah, you are too busy. It's saying quite a lot about you. You are too busy to love those whom you can see. But somehow you want to say to me that you love me simply because I'm not physically present with you. I'm not in need myself. So again, John is being practical. John doesn't want you on the day of judgment to be in this camp where you are saying, "Ah, Lord, how? Lord, how? He doesn't want that to be the case. He wants you to know now. Because if your heart revolves around your own little life, me, myself, and I, and church is supposed to be as it were running all over the place for you, and not vice versa. Why wait until the day of judgment to discover, when you can see the evidence now and deal with it right away? Say to yourself, here is abundant evidence, my heart is still unconverted. I still need the grace of God to change my heart from the inside out, that I may be interested, genuinely interested, in the people of God with whom I am journeying to heaven. John gives a second reason why love must be double-dimensional. And it is because to fail to love both God and believers is to live a life of disobedience to God. Disobedience to God. Because according to John... It's God's command. Verse 20, or rather verse 21. Verse 21. And, and by the way, that and is is there in the original, right? And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, this is the second reason. Is that we have received this as a command from God. There are no options. You can't say, me, I will choose this one rather than the other. There's no such a thing. Because God's command involves both the vertical and the horizontal. It must be both. When the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth, he was challenged a few times about what the greatest commandment was, and his answer was always love. It was always love. But he would begin by saying something like this. The greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And then he would quickly add, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. He always added the second one. Now when you go to the Old Testament, the two are not sitting next to each other. They are not. But Jesus knew that it would be Terrible error for a person to say, I love God, and then run off. Because there are two that must stand next to each other. And he ends by saying that it is on these two commandments that everything hangs. Everything. Let's read it in uh, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. and uh, we'll begin with verse 34. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. He's basically saying you can't choose one. It must be both. It must be both. It's like trying to, 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 to have a train that's running on one rail. You won't get anywhere. You need both rails for your train to take you to your destination. In the same way, God doesn't command us, love me, love me, love me. Doesn't matter about these brethren, but love me. No, 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 no. He says, Yes, you ought to love me. And then he quickly, literally in the next breath, says, And you ought to love your brothers also. And even as our Lord in the upper room discourse spoke to his disciples, Again, he said exactly the same thing to them. That I'm giving you a new commandment, and it is this. Love one another. This is going to be a distinguishing mark. This is the way the world is going to know you. It's going to know you by your love for one another. That's the way it's going to be. So if you're a Christian, then you are a person who has repented. And the proof of repentance is that you now want to obey God. Whatever God says, you want to obey. And you have obviously already seen in the Bible, God commanding that you must love your neighbor. You must love one another. You've read it. So the question is asking here is simple. You claim to have repented. You claim to be a a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's see if it's happening through your love for believers in terms of you obeying my clear command. Let us see if it is happening. Therefore, Concentrating on loving God alone is not simply insufficient, it is also sinful. It's sinful because you are disobeying God. Now, I think it's it's important that we, we face this fact. The reason is because it's easy to love. either God or human beings that we don't brush shoulders with because they never offend us. They never do. They never say the wrong things. They never do the wrong things to us. We could all live with that. But that's the reason why God calls us into fellowship with one another. That's the reason why When he saves us, he wants us to be baptized and to enter into the life of the church. Because in that life of the church, that's where we begin to brush each other the wrong way. And that's where we begin to see whether our love is truly spiritual. And if you find that you're the kind of individual who... You will have gathered together just your own little bunch of friends. And that's all you're interested in? The rest of the body of Christ will belong to your local body. You're not interested in them at all. Jesus is simply saying that's what the world also does. The world also has its own little click, And in that click, yes, that's where everything happens. Anyone on the outside, they are not interested. Your love is proved right in here among the people of God that you say, that's my brother and that's my sister. And if there's somebody, for who you know is supposed to be your brother and your sister, and you deliberately avoid them, you deliberately do it, You deliberately, if you see them sitting on one side, as I said last time, you cross over to sit on the other side. Because they've done something to you or against you. Well, one proof that you are saved is to get up, go to them, and say, we need to deal with issues between the two of us because I need to be reconciled to you. We're supposed to be one body. I ought to genuinely love you in a practical way. And I'm struggling. Let's sit down. Let's talk. That's what Jesus says. He says, "If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault." He doesn't say, "If your brother sins against you, forgive him." And that's what a lot of us do in your own heart. Some, no, 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 I've forgiven him. Forgiven him. <laughs> go ahead and talk to him. No, 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 no it's all right. Sorry, right. I've forgiven him. It's over. It's Well, Jesus' main aim in forgiving is reconciliation. That's what it's about. You have won your brother over. That's his interest. That there should be true love, genuine love, flowing towards one another. That the world may see that there is genuine love and care and mercy, concern for one another. What often happens is if you follow that worldly route of saying, oh, forgive I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. And here unbelievers now, you are together in the car or at home. And then that person's name comes up. The unbelievers are seeing you going, They obviously can see. And in their hearts they're saying, and and they're supposed to be Christians. Because each time that name comes up, it's a negative. It's a negative. This is the reason why I cannot help this person. Jesus is saying here, rather, John is saying here, God's love is practical. It's practical. It ought to show the world true saving grace. And what I'm saying, therefore, is we can cheat one another. We can, but we can't cheat God. God knows what's happening in our hearts. He knows it. He knows when we go. No. He knows. And he says, there is the evidence of a heart not only that doesn't love but a heart that is in stubborn sin because I've said it's my command that you should love. So, as we wrap up, This section. John is saying, in effect, that your inward condition is measured by your outward actions. Or, putting it another way, you always reveal what you are on the inside by what you do on the outside. That's it. So, Do not shut yourself up with God to see if you are truly saved. That's only half the proof. It's only half the proof. The other half is, do you love the brothers and sisters that you are with, especially that you are with in the same church? Do you love them in a practical way? Do you? Do you? Do they honestly look at you and say, this brother is loving? This sister is loving? Or are you simply part of the crowd that your only connection with the wider body is to warm that pew on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. And as soon as it finishes, not interested in anything else, gone. Into your own little life. My plea as I close is this. Number one, if you find yourself on the wrong side with these tests... Don't try to be clever. Humble yourself. And go before the Lord Jesus Christ and plead with him to really save you. That's why he came. That's why he died on that cross. That's why he has sent down his spirit to change us, to transform us from the inside out. Don't Play with God. He knows all things. Simply make bare your heart before Him. Lord, I have again been found out. Among the most religious, save me. And save me in such a way that your people will really be treasured by me. That I will spend time, I'll spend money, I'll spend my abilities and gifts in order to be a blessing to them. Lord, please change me. And when he's done that, the second is, go to your fellow believers and tell them, I'm your servant. I want to be a blessing to you. I hear there's this need. I want to help. I want to help. Let me be your brother genuinely. Let me be your sister genuinely. Let me be your servant genuinely. I want to. And where reconciliations need to be done, let them be done. Go to your brother, to your sister and say, look, there's this issue. We can't go on like this. Let's clear it. Let's deal with it. Who knows? You might be my neighbor in heaven. Let's sort these things out now. Amen. switch